The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There are lots of reasons that people leave churches. I've been doing ministry in some kind of context for a number of years and I've heard all kinds of reasons why people leave churches. It could be preaching styles, music styles, preferences about small groups. But another that tops the list is relational conflict. So we've been telling you all throughout the series, we've been saying things like, don't just be a consumer Christian. You know, one who just shows up and sings some songs and just walks out the door. Although I will say, during COVID, it's kind of hard not to do just that, right? Because that's kind of what we're asking you all to do. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, don't just be someone who... Um, just consumes spiritual goods and services, so to speak, and then never plugs into community, never serves. I know there might be some that are, that are here, and you might say to yourself, well, I, I tried to plug in at the last church I was at. I tried to plug in into, into a group. I tried to serve, but it just didn't go well. And that's why I'm here. That's why I came to your church. So we've been challenging you through the series to make sure we see ourselves as part of a body interconnected, connected to each other like a human body. I work primarily with high school students, which by the way, if you have high schoolers or junior high students, we are start, we started up about a month ago on Wednesday night, so 6.30 to 8 o'clock, junior high out at the Outback, outside right now, high school at the Creekside building, outside behind the Creekside building, 6.30 to 8 on Wednesday evenings. We'd love to have your student join us out there. But usually for a high school or junior high student, if they check out it's almost always a relational conflict. So how do we handle this kind of conflict within the church? In Corinth, it wasn't just that people weren't getting along. They were actually suing each other. Can you imagine that awkward small group? Like you go to a group and the guy across is like the one who's filed a lawsuit against you. So these people are suing each other and taking each other to court. And so it's not just disagreements, but they're actually getting into legal issues together. Now, don't think that this uh, passage doesn't apply to us because we may not be doing lawsuits. You may not have, um, be doing some of those things, but every church has conflict, and sometimes the conflict goes public while the world looks on. And this is happening in Corinth. So we're gonna read 1 Corinthians chapter six. Look with me at, the, at that passage. Look at verses one through eight. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now the Corinthians, they were a proud people and they were competitive, and they were concerned for their own rights. They didn't want someone coming along and infringing on their rights and inhibiting their freedoms. And I cannot imagine anything modern day this happening in the church today that would be similar to that, right? But they were an independent people. 
And sometimes connecting, if you and I see ourselves primarily as individuals with individual rights, then we're going to have a lot of grievances with each other. And this is happening in Corinth. Sometimes connecting the Bible to modern day can be difficult. This is not the case in today's passage because the Greeks back then, they loved using the law courts to solve disputes. Greek men, they loved law and and deciding cases or hearing about cases. It's been said, it's like a form of entertainment. It's been said that many of them were like amateur lawyers. They weren't professionals. They didn't get paid, but they just loved to pontificate and use their amateur law skills. It's kind of like how many of you guys are amateur coaches and you know what's best for your specific team, right? And so in that day, they were, they were like amateur lawyers and they would love to talk about law and discuss it and try to solve disputes and those kinds of things. Back in many of their cities, there was what's called a Bema seat. I think my battery is dead on this remote. Could you guys hit the slide back there? I'm going to rely on you the rest of the sermon because my battery is dead up here, I think. So there was a, um, a judgment seat called the Bema seat in most of the city squares. And what you could do is you could go to the heart of the city and while shopping, you could hear court proceedings. So on this seat would be like a judge or magistrate would, would sit or stand. And what they would do is they would hear the cases in the public city square. And while you're shopping, whether you're going to get your, your clothing or whether you're going to get your food, you could listen into these court proceedings taking place out in public. And so this was happening in, um, there in Corinth and other, other Greek cities as well. So here you go. Thank you. So this is happening in Corinth and... Uh, you know, again, I can't imagine like any modern day examples of this. You know, I can't, I can't think of any. I don't know if you can or not. But there's just something about, even in, in modern day, we are just obsessed hearing about everyone else's business. Hearing what they're talking about. Hearing what, you know, who's going against who and making it this public spectacle. And this was happening there in Corinth. There's something about that that makes us feel better about ourselves, I think. So these Corinthians, they are obsessed with suing each other, and this attitude permeated the church. So remember back in 1 Corinthians 5 last week, there are aspects of the culture that had permeated the church there in Corinth, and the same thing is happening uh, when it comes to what's happening in chapter 6 as well. They are allowing what's happening out there in the culture to permeate the church, and it has taken over the church in Corinth. David Pryor writes, Once a group of Christians becomes obsessed with its rights instead of its responsibilities, there will be untold trouble until they find the way to true repentance. So what are we most concerned with? Are you concerned with your rights or your responsibilities? It's really tempting to think that this doesn't apply to us because, you know, like you and I, we're not suing anybody. But let's broaden out the question, how should we handle relational conflict in the church? For many people, this might be why you left a church or why you left the church in general. Because you, you see this kind of relational conflict happening in the church and you just think, this, this can't be what I want to be a part of. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are flaunting your failures. And you're flaunting your failures in front of the watching world. When it, Paul says, when you have a grievance. So a grievance would have been trivial matters. So not necessarily people breaking the law, but they're filing grievances with each other. And when, when Paul says, he says, when you have a grievance, implying that he knows there's going to be conflict in the church. Some people get so disoriented whenever there's conflict in the church, they just pack up their bags and leave. And Paul just accepts the reality. When you have sinners in the same body of believers, you're going to have conflict. It's a when, not an if. So what kind of conflict is Paul talking about? Well, he's not talking about criminal cases. He's talking about civil cases. This is dealing with uh, property or money. And Paul is not saying the church should handle crimes in-house. He's not talking about crime. The church has gotten in trouble over the years for trying to handle crimes in-house and not tell anybody. So, so crimes are not the same thing as sins. Crime is under the state's jurisdiction. Sin is under the jurisdiction of the church. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, why are you guys airing your dirty laundry? Don't you know that the world is watching what you're doing and how you're acting? When the world sees inconsistency or hypocrisy in the church, what do they do? They pounce. When the world sees inconsistency or hypocrisy in the church, they pounce on it. And they're, always, they're looking for an excuse not to believe. And so why give them an excuse? If we see, if we see two atheists in a public dispute, no one's questioning atheism, Right? If we see two atheists in a public dispute, no one is saying, you see, I, I told you atheism wasn't true. No one says that. But when it comes to Christianity, if we, if we see, if two Christians have a public dispute, everyone questions Christianity. You see how they're not getting along. You see how they're fighting and bickering with each other. There's no way that what they say they believe is really true. I mean, look at how they fight. Look at all that disunity in the church. So this goes beyond lawsuits. So I'm going to reread verse 1, and I'm just going to take out, I'm not trying to add to Scripture, but I want to take out and put it in one word and just see what you think about it. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to social media before the unrighteous? So what about those kinds of habits for us? You know, in some ways it's like a big, it's like a big courtroom, isn't it? You go and you express your opinion, you make your case, or you may express in a way in which you were wronged by someone. Maybe you even tag them in the post, and then everyone lines up, the jury lines up, everyone gives their verdict, everyone says, I fully agree, or I completely disagree, and this big fight ensues on social media. And, and a jury of, of hundreds, maybe it's hundreds, maybe it's thousands, give all their opinions, there's the dissenting opinions, and so it's like one big, it's like one big courtroom, and I think it affirms the idea that, that many of us want to be affirmed and justified um, in our world, and so this is all playing out in Corinth. We've got to be careful that we don't care more about our rights than the reputation of our Savior. You see, the secular world demands their rights, and many Christians do the same thing. So Paul is not saying that you should just be a doormat. 
or you should never raise a concern or a question. He's not saying, you know, if someone wrongs you, just be quiet and deal with it. He is saying there's a better way, and the better way is to go to the saints. The better way is to keep it, if there's a trivial matter or a grievance, you keep it within the context of the body of Christ, but you, you try to solve it within the body of Christ using those resources in the church. Even the words of Jesus, I think, display this principle in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there are some Christians that think if, if someone commits a wrong, you just roll over and play dead. Well, that's not really a biblical idea either. That just perpetuates evil or leads to destruction, leads to bitterness. If someone sins against you, Jesus is saying, don't quickly go to the third party, but you go to the person and you try to work it out. And, and the idea is to keep the circle small. Even inside the church, keep the circle small. The point is not just to win an argument, but to gain your brother. And if he doesn't repent, well, then you take one or two with you, and you go to him again. You go, but you keep the circle small. And if he still doesn't repent, then the circle gets a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. It might even lead to 1 Corinthians, what happened in 1 Corinthians 5, we talked about last week. Jesus is really saying how you handle conflict inside the church matters as well. So it's not just that you handle it inside the church, but how you handle it, how you go about it inside the church also matters. The idea is to keep the circle small and mitigate the damage. That you deal with the sin, you deal with the grievance, you deal with the fault, but you do it in such a way that it's gracious and loving and with the least amount of damage. So Jesus' words, I think, tie in well with what Paul's trying to say here to the Corinthians. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul is saying, you are forgetting your future. So remember, remember in, in chapter 5, Paul is saying, who are you to judge the world? But now he's saying, you're going to judge the world, so which is it? Are we going to judge the world or not? Well, it's really an issue of timing and tone. Many Christians spend much energy judging the world today, and we do so self-righteously. We'll say things like, can you, can you believe all the evil out there? Can you believe how bad things have gotten out there? And really, when, when we're saying those kind of things, what's behind that statement is we forget like who we used to be before Christ. We forget that our salvation is because of his grace and mercy to us, not because of some, something that's special about us. So the way in which you and I tend to judge the world today is sort of a self-righteous tone. And we do it right now. But Jesus, there is gonna be a day when Christians are gonna help Jesus judge the world, but it's not in the way that we do so today. 
In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the final judgment, in in some way, believers are going to be involved with Jesus judging sin and evil. And Paul is saying, if, if that is your destiny, if that is your future, then how can you not deal with the trivial cases in the church in the here and now? If you haven't noticed with Paul, he has the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And we see it here. He says, if you're going to judge the world eventually with Jesus, are you incompetent to decide trivial cases? Are you so incompetent that you can't handle minor trivial grievances in the body of Christ? Don't you know that you're going you're to join Jesus one day and you're going to help him judge the world? And judge all evil. And you're saying you can't even handle these little minor things in your context? There's been a lot of news about the Supreme Court lately. And what Paul is talking about here would be like if someone's nominated to the Supreme Court, but then they feel incompetent to try cases at a much lower court. So Paul is saying... One day you're going to be with Jesus, judging the world, judging all sin and evil along with Jesus, and you can't even bring yourself to, you can't find the competency to, to judge these, these small things in your, own, in your own context. He even includes fallen angels here. So what does that mean? He says, you're going to even judge the fallen angels so that the angels that rebelled against God, that's all part of the final judgment as well. So as a believer, we, we, we don't feel right now like we're somehow above the angels, do we? Like we, we feel like we're lesser beings to the angels. But Paul's saying, no, even, even the fallen angels are included in the final judgment and you as a believer are going to somehow be working with Jesus to bring about that final judgment. And that's even going to include, that's even going to include the angels. So Paul is saying, how can you not bring yourself to figure out your grievances here in the body of Christ? He's really saying future position should determine present action. So last week we saw how Paul appeals to their identity And he is saying last week in 1 Corinthians 5, he is saying, you are really unleavened, meaning that you're holy and you're pure and you're sanctified. And he's saying, now let let that impact your present reality. He's doing the same thing here. He's saying, let your your future position impact your present reality. I think about a story that Chase told me this past week. He talked about how this guy named Tom Rainier, who was the uh, CEO of Lifeway for a while. And he recently retired. And he started his own consulting businesses to consult with churches and pastors. And so he left Lifeway, and, and I'm sure they had some kind of a contract for about a year or two after he had resigned. And apparently, in Lifeway's view, he violated some of those contract demands when he was doing his new consulting business. So they, they file a lawsuit against him, the former CEO. And then he goes to them and says, I want to know what are the things that you want me to do 
to, to meet your demand. So they gave him a list of six things they want him to do. And he said, I agree to do all six because I don't believe that Christians should be going to law against each other. And so they dropped the lawsuit. So on the one hand, you say, well, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing that happened to begin with. But on the other hand, you say, well, look, you know, this is a man who gets it. It's a man who knows what his calling is. It's a, it's a man who knows that his future position should influence his, his present action. So Paul here is saying, you've got the wisdom of God, so why are you going before those who don't have the wisdom of God? Those out there in the world, they, they play by a different set of rules. Why are you going to submit yourselves to those rules that aren't kingdom rules? They're not kingdom standards or principles. If a couple comes to me and, and is seeking marriage counseling, I'm going to send them to a, to a counselor that is a biblical, Bible-believing Christian counselor. Because if I send them somewhere else, it's just some random person, that person might say, well, you guys don't really get along. Maybe y'all should get divorced. You're looking for happiness. Maybe you should look for someone else. And so I want to send them to someone who's going to say, we can work through this. We can, we can look into God's word, look into God's principles, and work through the relational conflict here. So if I'm sending someone there, I'm going to send them to a believer because they, they live by different principles than what the world lives by. Look down with me at verse 5. Paul says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul is saying, you are bypassing your resources. Again, Paul is not negating government here. He's, in Romans 13, he's got a lot to say about government. He says that God has set up government to carry out God's wrath on the evildoer over in Acts 22. Paul's about to be beaten, and he appeals to Roman law, and he says, hey, guys, you can't beat a Roman citizen, remember? That's the law. And so Paul is not anti-law. He's not anti-government. He's not some anarchist. He believes in those things. Those things are gifts from God. But we see Paul's sarcasm here again. He says, if you remember, the Corinthians took pride in knowledge and wisdom. So Paul calls them out. He says, you say you're wise. Is there no one Wise enough to settle your dispute? You Corinthians, you, you love knowledge and wisdom. Is there no one who's wise enough in your midst to settle the matters that are between you and the conflict between you? So he gets sarcastic again. The believer really has all they need in Christ. We have infinite resources in Christ. Paul's not saying to just Ignore disputes or sweep them under the rug. But he's saying, use your resources to solve them. Use your resources to bring about a resolution to the things you're encountering with each other. You know, too often believers act like problems just don't exist. So Paul doesn't do that. He admonishes believers to, to seek wise counsel and to solve the dispute. This past, uh, recently I heard a story that a pastor told about some men in his congregation. He said that when he, early in ministry, there was a man in his congregation who hired someone else to do some work at his house. And he advanced the man some money. And then 
that man didn't finish the job. And so now there's a grievance. So this elder and this pastor decided to go meet with these two men to bring about a resolution. And they both chose to submit to whatever these two, this pastor and this elder said. They determined that indeed this man did owe this man the money or he had to either finish the work or pay the man back. But in, this, in the conversation, what came out was the man who didn't finish the work, the man who spent the money and didn't finish the work, it came out that he had fallen on, on hard financial times. And so now this pastor and elder look at the man who had been wronged and then said, you're right, you're, you're totally right. He owes you the money or he should finish the job. But based on what he just told us, you also now have a chance to show mercy. And the man showed mercy. You see, the, the kingdom operates based on different rules and different principles. And there's only one way that story can happen when Christ is your resource. There's only one way that story takes place is if, 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 the, crucif- if the crucified Christ and the resurrected Christ is your resource. Only way that happens. Look with me at verse seven. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? You're betraying your calling. So what Paul is saying here is that you are, as the Corinthian people, you are betraying what God's called you, who God has called you to be. So even if a judge rules in someone's favor, nobody wins. There is a corrosive effect. Even if someone gets their way and they win, there's a corrosive effect. No matter what happens in the courtroom, there's already been a loss. An earthly win is usually a kingdom loss. You might be technically right, but still be in the wrong. There are many believers that would rather ruin their witness than take one for the team. They would rather defame the name of Christ than their own name be tarnished. They would rather the church suffer than they suffer. This past week in staff meeting, uh, Danny Cunningham, our executive pastor, shared a story with us. And he said that he had this friend many years ago, this young guy that had a, a young wife and a young daughter, And the three of them were in a car driving somewhere, and a drunk driver hits them. And the wife and the daughter are killed instantly. And now this man is in a hospital. He's fully conscious. He knows what happened to his wife and his daughter. And this man's in the hospital with injuries. And he hears that the drunk driver is in the same hospital, also with injuries. And he's conscious. And this man who just lost his wife and his daughter, he said, well, I know what I have to do. And so he gets out of bed and he walks down the hallway to that drunk driver. And in person, he, he tells the man that he forgives him. There's only one way that story can happen is if someone understands their calling. If someone understands kingdom principles and kingdom rules. I think that man knew his calling. He placed his calling above 
his rights. And there were people that even told him, no, you shouldn't go do that because that could lead to bad legal ramifications for you. And he says, you know, that doesn't matter to me. We'll deal with that later on. I'm going to go forgive this man. And he did. Now, these next few verses almost look out of place. But Paul is saying that if you fight one another like those in the world, then you're going to look just like the unrighteous. So look with me at verse 9. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So let's be really clear. This does not mean that if you have committed any of these acts, then you cannot be saved. That would be a works-based salvation. And I don't know if you notice this, but this list indicts everyone. I am somewhere on this list. You are somewhere on this list. This list indicts everybody. So don't think for a minute that if you've committed some of these acts here, that means you cannot be saved. That's not a biblical idea at all. But again, these are non-believers that are struggling with sins. These are not believers that are just struggling with sins or desires, but these are people that are defiantly walking and living in unrepentant sin, like the couple back in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says these people will not be the ones that are sitting with, with Jesus at the end of time, rightly judging evil. They're the ones that are committing the evil, the ones who will be judged, So why would you go to these people asking them to settle your disputes? It doesn't make any sense. And then Paul takes a turn in verse 11. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The Corinthians struggle with pride, and one of the best ways to stay humble is to remember where you came from. Whenever people that are athletes make it big or a musician makes it big, what do people say? They say, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget your roots. And I know in the Christian world, we don't like to think about the past because it, it's, it's a true biblical statement. We don't want to get caught up in the shame and condemnation and the guilt of our past sins. But I think on another level, it is good for us to think about who we used to be. And such were some of you. I also think about, as Paul's writing this, think about Paul's own testimony. Here you have someone who was persecuting Christians, possibly killing Christians himself, And as he pens those words, might he be talking about himself? And such were some of you. Again, we don't look to the past to feel condemned or guilty or shame-ridden, but sometimes thinking of your own story, who you used to be, remembering our past can fuel our praise at times. Becoming a Christian is a fundamental change in identity. You no longer do what you used to do because you are no longer who you used to be. You no longer do what you used to do because you are no longer who you used to be. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, 
This is what he offers you. He offers you a complete change in identity. It's not just about, okay, you prayed some prayer and your, your ticket is stamped to heaven. It's not just that, but it's a fundamental transformation of your identity. So when you surrender your life to Jesus, you are, you are washed and cleansed of sin's guilt and you are sanctified and you're set apart for holiness and you are justified and declared righteous before God. And if we had to stand in a, in a courtroom before God without, without Jesus, we would stand condemned and stand guilty before God. But Jesus settled with us by sacrificing himself. He absorbed the cost for us on our behalf so we could have a relationship with the Father. And how he relates to us is how we are to relate to each other. And I think we see this idea play out powerfully in a story that many of you probably know well. At the beginning of the story, Les Mis, the main character, Jean Valjean, is a criminal, and he steals from a priest, but the priest's reaction is not what you and I would expect. Let's go ahead and watch this clip. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed (laughs) that you gave it to him. Yes? Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you.
don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. When you and I release our rights, we release the power of the gospel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We're so grateful to you that you're a God who reconciles. You're a God who reconciles with us. You offer us reconciliation with you and offer us a relationship with you. And God, we thank you that that reality impacts how we live out our relationships in the body of Christ. God, I pray that you would bring about reconciliation where there needs to be reconciliation right here in our midst, that you'd bring about just life-giving relationships that would mirror the relationship that you have with the Father in that kind of unity, that kind of bond. God, I pray that the, the world would look in and see that kind of thing happening here and long to be part of it, long to be part of your kingdom, long to know you, long to be in relationship with you. God, give us the ability to to live out those relationships here at TBC so that we can be a better testimony to your kingdom and to your gospel here in our city and reach our city and also reach the world as well. We pray this in your name. Amen.